Welcome to Policy Matters. We are Matt Dixon and Franz Buscher. And today we're joined by Steve Machin, who's a professor of economics at the London School of Economics. Welcome, Steve. Hi. Steve has a long history of economics research, is one of the leading UK economists, working in areas of, of the economics of education, uh, labour markets, social mobility, and in particular, as we'll talk about today, the economics of crime. Steve's one of the leading figures uh, in research on the economics of crime, and we're keen to think uh, over the next few episodes about how economists can talk to policymakers about things other than education and social mobility, which we've talked a lot about in previous episodes. Some people might be thinking, Steve, you know, what do economists have to say? Anything about crime, you know, what do you have to say about crime? Why would an economist be able to help policymakers when it comes to the area of crime? Yeah, that is an impression that people do seem to have, uh, that they wonder sometimes why economists might be interested in crime. I actually think it's one of the most relevant areas, actually, if you think about standard economic models to try and think about um, the way in which individuals who are potentially on the margins of committing crime and not committing crime uh, may be affected by economic factors in uh, making that decision. So the obvious areas that people would think about there would be if economic incentives change, might that tip somebody over the edge to commit crime if the economic incentives worsen, or might that uh, tip them the other way to not commit crime if the economic incentives um, get better? And the sort of economic incentives we might think about would be, you know, the wage on offer in the labour market. It might be the likelihood of getting a job. It might be whether unemployment benefits are more or less generous. And so you might think about if those things change, that actually may have potential for individuals, as I say, who are on the margins of crime, uh, who may have relatively low incomes, to actually think about undertaking, if you like, some kind of cost-benefit calculation, where they calculate what the expected benefits would be and what the expected costs would be, and weigh that up with a probability of getting caught, and then think about uh, court committing a crime, and then then think about uh, whether they may make that decision. And so if you put it very harshly, you could even pitch it as an occupational choice in some ways. So kind of a very rational choice then almost. So really that it's not the kind of thoughtless thing that people are doing in an act of passion, but actually really thinking about the benefits and costs. Yes, I I mean, mean, in that sense, for people on the margins who may be affected by economic incentives, of course, there's lots of other reasons, psychological reasons, social reasons, and so on, why individuals may participate in crime, which the economic model may be less well suited to, Mm. of course. But yeah, but in in that sense, for people on the margins, it's going to be much less relevant, I guess, for hardened criminals who are, you know, perhaps career criminals who are already committing crimes, and indeed some people who would never, ever go near, near that. Uh, but for people on the margins, yeah, I think the, the standard way of thinking about economic decision-making is actually a reasonably good one for okay. thinking about cr- okay. some, some sorts of crimes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Let's focus on these people on the margin, because I know that you have a paper which I've used myself, actually, in my own scientific outputs. Uh, you have a paper that explores the link between education and crime. Do you want to just elaborate this a little bit? Why are education and crime linked? And actually, what are some of the outcomes of what your research has found? Yes, of course, education is something that is linked to economic incentives and the economic outcomes uh, that people have in life. So we know, for example, we, we, know, we know education impacts uh, on a lot of factors. Uh, you know, if, if you acquire more education, we've got a lot of evidence out there that people earn more in the labour market. Yeah. So if you think about linking that to what I just said a moment ago about economic incentives, of course, if you earn more because you've got more education, then there could be an income effect which would stop you 
um, if you know if, you, if your income if it's positive from from more, acquiring more education, that would stop you from mm. committing crime. Now it's not the only mechanism by which we might think that education could impact on crime. Another thing would be uh, if. Uh, so one of the ways in which people have tried to demonstrate that there's a causal impact of education on crime, i.e. it's education that has a direct impact on crime, uh, rather than the other way around, that you, know, you might think you if, you, if you, if you think you might go into a life of crime, you may be less likely to acquire yeah, education. education. So to demonstrate that there's a causal impact that runs in a direction from education to crime and not the other way around, People have looked at um, what's happened when compulsory school leaving laws have changed. So when the age at which you have to stay at school um, goes up. Yeah. And so what that does is that makes people stay in the classroom for longer. Hmm. Uh, and you might say that one mechanism whereby that could reduce crime would be an incapacitation effect by keeping keeping yeah. children in the classroom so they're not on the streets, yeah. hanging around on street corners and potentially, potentially committing crime. The secondary effect would be what I said a minute before as well. If the education is productive so that it enables people to earn more in the labour market subsequently, then uh, that can also have a direct income effect. I guess a third way, over and above productivity effects and incapacitation effects in which, in which education can impact on crime, is uh, if people have different attitudes towards risk. So if you think that people are more educated uh, or more patient in some sense to wait for things that happen in mm. life, uh, rather than acting on impulse, uh, straight away, then there could be a risk aversion effect that could operate as well. Yeah. And so all of those mechanisms could could generate you a causal impact on, of education on crime. And there's actually quite a lot of evidence out there from different countries, mostly using this idea that if you raise the compulsory school leaving age, that can have an impact on, on a crime-reducing impact for, of education. And you found that particularly for the UK, right? With the, uh, I think it was in 1972... Uh, raising the school leaving age from 15 to 16. So I guess we're talking about the people who are affected by this are not necessarily, they're, they're on the educational margin, right, of, of getting some qualifications, staying, getting kind of CSEs or O-levels or leaving. They're kind of, they're bound by the reform. Yeah, that's, 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 quite, a, that's quite an important distinction to make. So, so, so the reform you're talking about took place for, for children in the 1972-73 school year. Yeah. And the, the age at which you would uh, leave school was raised from 15 to 16. Uh, so obviously only the people who were, would have stayed on to 15 had the legislation not changed would be the ones who'd be affected. So there may well have been some people who'd gone to university yeah. anyway. But yeah. clearly they, they're not going to be affected by that. So basically in the lingo that economists talk about, yeah. this is actually a local effect yeah. in the sense it only affects people at the bottom end of the education distribution. So that reform is actually a local effect, mm. uh, which you may not necessarily want to extrapolate to the whole population. But certainly for those individuals down the bottom end of the education distribution, mm. the uh, compulsory school leaving law change that took place in Britain then seemed to causally reduce crime. Uh, there's evidence from other places. So in the US, the compulsory school leaving age differs across states yeah, yeah. and so you can actually think about um, when different states raise their compulsory school leaving age whether that has an impact on a education as a first stage and yeah. b on crime as a second stage and there's quite a lot of evidence from the US that uh, when different states raise their compulsory school leaving age compared to ones that didn't then people a got more education and b that also had a secondary effect which the legislation was not designed about at all I mean it's, it is an unintended consequence yeah of an education policy, but actually the education policy also had, had, had extra benefits by reducing crime. A positive unexpected consequence, because normally we think of you know un unexpected consequences as having some negative impact on, well, that, on that, that's social outcomes. Yeah, but. that's definitely right. I mean, you know, and, and, and clearly the policies were not introduced with yeah. the direct notion of reducing crime, but it, but it does show that an education policy can 
both benefit people's uh, own education, but also can have a benefit for society by reducing crime. Yeah, I had well. a look. I mean, I had a look at sort of the back of the envelope calculations in the paper, which sort of su- suggests that the one percent reduction in the population of people with no qualification leads to around forty thousand less property crimes. Right, and that's really significant. Uh, you know, ultimately monetary benefits to that reform coming through. And uh, I just have sort of have a personal question because you mentioned earlier the possible transmission mechanisms, of which there's a few. Do you have any personal thought which one might be the dominant one? Do you think it is really more about this idea that, yes, because they have higher education now, the opportunity cost of committing crimes is that much higher because they can you know, earn more wages, higher wages in the labor market? Is it, is it just pure economics or is, uh, is there other things? I mean, what, what is your thought? Well, that is the, the argument is pure economics, but you can obviously think about it applying more or less in, dif- in, dif- in different situations. So, for example, some of the earlier work that looked in the US, uh, when the initial school leaving age was quite low, sometimes 14, 15, and being raised to 15 or 16, for example, there seems to be more evidence of that having a productivity effect through earnings benefits than when it's reached higher ages more recently in the last 20 years or so, when sometimes the reforms might go from 17 to 18 or 16 to 17. Uh, And the incapacitation effects probably seem more important there. Uh, I mean, I guess one of the more open questions we don't completely know about is whether those incapacitation effects have longer-run crime-reducing effects as well. I mean, obviously, you could think that they could... uh, So so one way in which which criminologists have thought about the well-observed fact that you have these crime-age profiles that peak for different crimes, but in lots of different settings at round about 18 or 19, so a maximum, it's a kind of inverse U-shape that peaks at... um, at 18 or 19, may, maybe. You could obviously think that if you raise the compulsory school leaving age, you could shift those, yeah. the, sh- the shape of those crime age profiles. And one way, it might be just to shunt it up a year, in which mm. case people would start doing crime anyway, but just defer a year. Mm. On the other hand, it may actually have a longer run effect by reducing people's propensity to participate in crime anyway. Yeah. So there's some very good work by criminologists who emphasize these different um, dimensions of the crime age profile. So there's the age of onset, which yeah. is the time you first start committing crime, if you do. And then you could kind of think about specialization that might occur as you get near the peak. And then you can think about desistance that takes place mm. when people stop committing crimes. Uh, and so that's what, what would generate this kind of, um, these kind of inverse U-shaped crime age profiles. And so you might think that the compulsory school leaving ages have a potential to affect the onset mm. age, or in fact, for whether people ever become criminals or not. And there is some evidence out there. Actually, we have some evidence from Australia, Queensland and Australia, where we have individual level data on, in, on people, so we can follow them between the ages of 15 and 24, mm-hmm. and we can see whether a, an important reform that took place in 2006, uh, the earning and learning reform that took place in, in Queensland in 2006, which it's earning and learning, so it's not just about um, keeping mm-hmm. children in the classroom, they could also be doing vocational education, for mm-hmm. example, training, apprenticeships type right. things, whether that has an impact. And it seemed to. It seemed to shift the crime age profiles up. Uh, but also lower them. And so okay, you get yeah. a short-run effect and a long-run effect from the education policy that was, in, that was initiated. Interesting. Because you, you kind of think that actually the estimated effects funds, you mentioned the kind of uh, reduction in, in property crime, over the longer term, if it does kind of lower those profiles, so actually people don't ever start committing crime and that, you know, just take a completely different career path, then over time, then those benefits are going to accumulate. Um, and you also think if, you know, there's talk about young people going to prison and actually they learn to be you know learn from other criminals in prison so if they never go to prison in the first place then perhaps there's a kind of you know even greater benefit than we've 
been able to identify so far. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, we know the social costs of crime are pretty high. And so there's obviously a benefit to society from the, if you like, the instantaneous impact. Yeah. But there may be a dynamic impact, a yeah. longer run impact as well. And indeed, you know, I mean, people do call uh, prisons universities of crime because somebody who might go in there, who ordinarily may have may just serve their sentence and come out, will actually get introduced to other criminal networks. Yeah. And so you can get spillover effects that can actually facilitate more crime in that kind of setting as well. Is that kind of where the sort of public health approach to crime, do you think, is starting to become more important? That there's a sort of growing realisation that actually, you know, it's not just about the pure prevention of crime or sort of incarcerating people. Uh, it's, it's sort of intervening much earlier in the life cycle and just stopping that whole trajectory from sort of, you know, from the first point, really. Yeah. I mean, I mean clearly a multifaceted or multi-pronged approach is, is important here. And early deterrence for individuals, if that can work, is clearly a good thing because there's a longer time horizon for the benefits of crime reduction to be kind of pursued. I mean, that said, there is still, I mean, one of the things you're alluding to on public health stuff, I guess, is early interventions, mm. early age interventions, which, of course, do have that aspect that the time horizon is longer. You still could argue that, you know, interventions in the adolescent years and in the early yeah. and in the later teenage years still would have potential, even if you'd not got in early um, as, as, as well, I think. Yeah. I think it's kind of similar to some of the things we've talked about before about education, where you're trying to intervene and you intervene early and then you have that longer time horizon. But actually, at other points, you know, there are other points in the education system where you can intervene and still have positive effects. It's not early or nothing. Kind yeah, of thing. I think, I think crime's, a, crime's a good example of that because, you know, I mean, it is true that the age of onset is sort of in the mid to late teenage years for many people who are participating in criminal activities, certainly for property, regular property crimes. Mm. I mean, some of the other crimes, are, you know, fraud and white-collar crime are done by much much, uh, yeah. and much later ages by, by people. It's not really 16-year-olds doing that, but many of these onset things about property crime would be in, in most kind of mid to late teenage years. Yeah. It's interesting, I mean, just to continuing the strand of sort of, you know, the economics and crime, I know that you've also looked at the sort of... Um, how sort of the macroeconomy or, or how sort of general price changes influence criminal behavior. So I know one of your recent papers looks at the price of goods, for example, and also the price of metals. And you find sort of quite striking sort of high elasticities where, you know, a 10% increase in prices across sort of a certain goods set leads to an increase of crimes of by one third. So it's quite significant. You said for metals, it's almost unity. So, you know, as, as soon as the price rockets up, crime will rocket up. I mean, on, on the economic incentive stuff that we, we've looked at so far, that we've spoken about so far, we're sort of thinking about the the role of certain incentives that, that would apply. I mentioned labour market, and it, we mentioned labour markets and education. On the other hand, a key feature in economic models of criminality is that the returns to crime, the potential returns to crime, how much you can get, is potentially an important factor. It's very, very understudied in the literature. So it's very surprising, I think, actually, that, that, that what we've looked at, the impact of changing prices as a proxy for the value of the loot, if you like, that mm -hmm. people could steal, has not really been looked at much in the literature at all. And we find very important effects of prices going up. From, you know, and, and indeed, the idea of the composition of crime, what people steal, changes over time. So, for example, you can think about the old anecdotes when people used to steal a video recorder and then go and sell it down the pub. But the trouble is the price of video recorders you can, has fallen massively, yeah. massively over time. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, lo there's lots of people riding around London on very expensive bikes. 
And so yeah. bicycle theft seems to have gone up as uh, there's been more of these kinds of yeah. things out there. Mobile phone theft is a big thing as the prices of mobile phones have become more, val- I mean, it's more, a- more valuable and, and so on. So, so, so one, th- one factor actually I think that's quite interesting in the, in the prices stuff is sure, it seems to have, it suggests the return, the potential return, the value of what you could steal. Uh, shapes your decisions. But it also explains changes in the composition of crime over time. So burglaries have gone down massively. So the video yeah. recorder that you would steal from somebody's house in a burglary has gone down. Yet people are much more likely, so the anecdote says, is to go and look for the jewellery hmm. as the price of gold yeah. has gone up, went up massively in the, in, in the 2000s. I like to think that I'm protecting myself against burglary by just not having anything worth nicking. I <laughs> think that's probably true because, you know, people you don't go around with big TVs, you know, out on, and things like that, because you can get them so... No, but you're carrying your iPad around in your bag and you're carrying your mobile phone that's, in your pocket. And, and and so you might argue that street theft is much more likely to be occur now because of the yeah. returns of it rather than burgling people's houses, which is actually a more, much more complicated thing to do, probably. But Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I guess it's, uh, a, like you say, a shift in the composition of what... Is there this is purely economics business. I mean, this is just about the returns, the potential yeah. returns are higher, so people are more likely to do it. Exactly. everything else constant. Is this being integrated into policing at all? I mean, because when I was looking at the data you provided in your paper, it's very striking. I mean, the time series just sort of are sort of perfect matches. You know, price goes up, crime goes up, price goes down, crime goes down. Is there a lesson here for preventive policing? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, so so one of the examples in our paper, one, as you as you as Franz already mentioned, one of the more extreme examples is metal crime. So it's true that in the 2000s, the price of uh, various commodities went up massively, largely driven by demand from China. So the copper price went up massively through the 2000s. And at the same time, copper theft rose very, very rapidly indeed, including stealing stuff off underground trains, uh, copper being stolen at various points. So we have another paper about booms and busts in crime, which actually focuses explicitly on metal crimes. And so it pursues this uh, argument that prices drove the um, crime up very, very, very rapidly in the 2000s. There was a police response to that, which had two prongs to it. It was a thing called Operation Tornado, which clamped down on the way in which people can sell stuff to scrap metal dealers. And then there was a scrap metal app that was introduced in 2013. And so we have this paper, paper about um, prices, policy and policing, three Ps, shaping the boom and bust of metal crime. And so what happened seemed you got this huge increase driven by the commodity prices. But then when the policy and the policing took place, we evaluate that and metal crime came down massively. Interestingly, it seems to be bobbing back up again uh, in the last uh, report that came out uh, over the last 12 months as well. But you can clearly think of booms and busts in criminal activity Mm. where you might think that individual economic incentives may be shaping things, but you can also think that the role of policing and policy can actually cause some of these booms and busts as well. I mean, that's a really positive story to think about kind of how economists in general talking to policymakers and how that is having a a measurable and and, uh, notable effect on crime. The fact that you can show this price mechanism and then police follows with legislation and we see that kind of impact through to the crime reduction. I guess we've it touches on a bit uh, another aspect, which is, okay, we've thought about crime, but in terms of reducing offending, so you've edited this book, uh, What Works in Reducing Offending. So the obvious question is to ask, you're the person to ask, you know, what does work in reducing offending? 
So I, I would I would put one caveat on that. So we we the editors, so lots of other people wrote the chapters of the book, and so. But yeah. um, but you know there are some there are some common patterns that come out, and there are some and there are some things that don't seem to work very as well. I mean I mean it is true that a lot of these issues have to be rather context yeah specific and at times time and place specific, and so you need to be a little bit careful about generalising. Yeah. But you know there's a bunch of areas where people have focused on in the economics literature and indeed have been studied in in the criminology literatures and the sociology of crime literatures as well. But there's a kind of big thrust on, from the economic side, more on incentives and possible deterrence uh, mechanisms yeah. might place place. So it's not surprising there's a big literature out there on crime and policing yeah. and the question about if you put more police on the streets, does that reduce crime? And uh, you, so you've got a paper on that, right? Uh, that I, I really like the title... Borrowing from the Smiths, the panic on the streets of London, crime, police, and the July 2005 terror attack. So, can you just explain a little bit how that terror attack allowed us to kind of or allowed you to get a handle on on that causal mechanism, the kind of police numbers and the, and the street crime? Yeah. So this is I think this is one of the best examples, or one of the cleanest examples you can think of actually across economics about how you might want to demonstrate causality yeah. running from one variable to another. So it could be, it could be Y and X. Yeah. But, and what you want to do is work out the impact of X on Y, but you want to make sure there's not a feedback mechanism yeah. that goes the other way around that contaminates that. So the, the crime and policing example is an absolute classic here. So in the economic models, we tend to think that um, if you increase the probability of an individual being caught, then that should deter them from participating in yeah. crime. So one obvious way you might think about the probability of being caught is to put more police on the streets, change yeah. the probability of being caught. And that might deter potential criminals from participating in crime. So in that model, the causation runs clearly from number of police to crime. The problem in reality is actually more police are put where there is more crime. Yeah. So more police are actually allocated to high crime areas yeah. for obvious reasons. Because yeah. So obviously the causation goes both ways there. Yeah. So you can think about high crime impacting on policing, numbers of policemen or police officers, uh, and then the number of police officers potentially reducing crime. So what you want to be able to do is disentangle the, in, the mechanism that you're interested in, which is the question about does more police reduce crime. Yeah. So that's quite challenging, and there's been quite a lot of statistical work out there over the years that basically just gets data on crime in pati- maybe particular places, maybe different cities yeah. uh, over time, and the number of police, and then just looks at the statistical relationship between those two without addressing the causality question at all. And a lot of that work finds no evidence of uh, more police on crime. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess if you look at the story, just to interrupt, but if you look at the long-run trend in crime, you know, we know for decades it's been falling. We know that police numbers have been falling, so you would infer from that, you know, less police, less crime, right? Yeah. So let's get rid of all the you police. Might, although, <laughs> within that, the, criminal, the criminality is quite cyclical yeah. as well, and it doesn't map in exactly. quite the same yeah. way to the cyclical nature. Yeah. So, so what you really want to do is you really want to think of think, think about, can you think about settings where uh, you can definitely establish the direction of causation goes from police to crime and not the other way around. Um, so the paper we have uh, looks at what happened uh, in before and after July 2005, 7-7 terror attacks, yeah. when overnight lots more police were put on the streets of yeah. inner London and not on outer London and not on adjacent areas beyond that. So you get a huge increase in police numbers the day after the terror attacks occurred, uh, a 32% increase in police deployment hours, um, basically overnight. And what happened with those increase in, in police deployment was basically it went up overnight, as I say, it stayed up for six weeks, and yeah. then actually unexpectedly, or nobody knew it was going to happen, 
potentially happen. After six weeks, the police deployment was lowered back to basically the pre-terror attack levels as well. So what we do in this paper is we look what happened to crime when the, when, when the policing went up and then subsequently fell. So there's actually two little experiments yeah, there if you think about it. And the second one is really good if you think about it because it was completely unexpected. The first one may, may affect people's behaviour in yeah. some kind of way as well. But what seemed to happen is basically crime fell by about 11%, stayed down for six weeks, and then pretty much straight away after the six weeks when the police were taken off the streets, went back up again to the pre-attack levels. Lots of other variables like, for example, people's um, travelling on the tube dropped massively overnight yeah. as well. But then that just recovered slowly and only got back to the pre-attack levels by about Christmas. Okay. Uh, and so clearly, you know, it didn't, uh, didn't change when the policing numbers yeah. changed. Yeah. And so basically we infer from that there was a causal impact of the number of police on crime from that event. And it's quite big. So if you think about the 30% increase in, in police officers, the 11% fall, you can infer there there's about, we might say, an elasticity of minus yeah. 0.3. Yeah. So a 10% increase in, in police numbers reduces crime by 3%. The caveat, of course, is it's a highly specific event. Yeah. You can't generalise it to many other settings, really, in any way. You know, the lingo we, we talk about is, you know, the study has lots of internal validity because yeah. it's a very, very good research design for yeah. establishing that police, more police reduce crime, but it has very little external validity. So for policymakers, that's an important mm. thing about how much could you generalise from, from that. So there are other papers that try to, to try to look at... Uh, either terror attacks, or there's a very famous paper by Steve Levitt in the US, economist at Chicago, who looked at what happens in, in election years to expenditure on, on police compared to non-election years. And so he tries to establish a causation from, from thinking about that and also yeah. finds a causal impact of the number of police officers on, on crime. So that's good. Again, it's a good, positive kind of story about very well-designed economic evaluations and then what they can tell us from the data and then inform policy and give give policymakers very clear direction because if as, as you were saying friends at the beginning if you just look at police crime and crime numbers then you can make some very naive kind of policy responses if you don't have a good design and establish the kind of causal uh, mechanism so as uh, mentioned earlier steve we've spoken a fair bit in the past friends and i with guests about uh, social mobility and, and education in particular and that was something we had uh, previous shows about and although we've been talking to you about crime, uh, you're also the author of a, a recently released book, Social Mobility and Its Enemies, um, written with uh, Lee Elliott Major from the uh, Sutton Trust. So we can't let you go without asking you the obvious question, which, which is, you know, who and what are the enemies of social mobility and what can we do about them? That's right. Point them out and Matt and I will get them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll try and we'll try and take them down. But yeah, if you can well, give one, some pointers. Well, one of the, one of the points we try to make about uh, about the enemies is everybody is potentially an enemy of social mobility. But even even so, lots of people argue that uh, social mobility is too low, and that perhaps it's dropped. But uh, sometimes when it comes to their own individual behaviour, uh, they themselves are the enemies of society. So maybe you guys should be after yourselves as well. Okay, well. Um, so, so, so some of, so some of the enemies. So some of the enemies. Some of the enemies. Uh, no, no, I think, it's, I think it's a very important point to make yeah. that actually that's, you know, a factor comes into play. So what we try to do in this book is we try to give a fairly populist discussion that can reach out to the lay reader where we try to give descriptions based on evidence 
um, with statistical work that's been credibly done in the area of social mobility in Britain, but also placing it as an appropriate international context. Uh, we know social mobility is pretty low in Britain compared to compared to some other countries, although pretty much the same kinds of levels, maybe a little better than the United States, yeah. uh, where the American dream is not. Yeah, it's uh, a is not is not there. It's a, partly because inequality is so much wider yeah. in the United States. But the idea is to actually put a lot of questions on the table so that people will have a much more frank and open discussion about the many potential drivers of social mobility or social immobility and the the means by which people might move up or down the earnings distribution that they themselves are in compared to where their parents were themselves. Well, thanks, Steve. It's been really great to uh, talk to you and and, uh, hear about your research. This has been Policy Matters with Matt Dixon and Franz Buscher. We'll be back with more soon. Goodbye.